Well, I've got a story for you this morning. It comes from that uh, favorite category of mine. Truth is stranger than fiction. According to the Sydney Telegraph, not, uh, not too long ago, I think it was just towards the end of this, this last year, Australian federal officials were reviewing security at the Dubbo Airport in New South Wales after a traveler spotted a note on a security gate. That note read, Gate Access Code. And then it provided the code to get through the gate into secure areas in the airport. Megan Dixon of the Dubbo City Council said the code was posted for, quote, itinerant airport workers who have security clearance to use this gate. And then she added, we had a security audit last year, which we passed. That was then. This is now, perhaps. There is just something, is there not? You hear that? That kind of, ooh, cringes inside of you. Years ago, we had a gentleman in our congregation who was a part of the National Guard, and after 911, his unit was called up, and their task was to breach airport securities around the country to try. And so we got together one day for coffee, and he, of course, he could never tell me where he was, but I had just asked him, so what have you seen out there? He said, well, the highlight this week was that I got through airport security in a certain city in the country and uh, got onto the airplane and actually was in the cockpit talking with the pilots, and I had a loaded 45 on me. I said, tell me you're kidding. Please, tell me you're kidding. He said, oh, I'm not kidding. He said, you have no idea what is out there. And I said, I don't want to know what's out there. Just let me keep my head in the sand. Thank you very much. Wow. You hear something like that, and, and there's just a, there's a visceral response inside. There's just that, oh, my goodness. That sense of, whew, we are not, we are not safe. Personal safety and security... Who would deny? It's, they're, they're near and dear to our hearts. The desire for both, to be safe, to be secure, the desire to be comfortable, I think it's woven into the fabric of what it means to be human. And I think, that's just my theory, I think it came as a result of the fall. When you think back to the garden scene, which we have visited a number of times in the past, before sin entered creation, there was not a need to be safe and secure. They were safe and secure. There was not a need to be comfortable. They were comfortable. They experienced unhindered fellowship and intimacy with their creator. Is there anything missing in a scenario like that? Hardly. So I, I think our... Our desire for safety and security comes as a result of living in this fallen world in which we do. We hear people talk from time to time about the certain persons that they know or that they've read about who they must have the X gene, you know, that, that extreme gene that, that, uh, that defies what is normally safe and secure. Some of us would even say, they don't have normal common sense. 
the X gene, you know, the the extreme desire to to be in insecure situations. They just don't have that normal self-preservation wiring that the rest of us do. This morning, as we continue our study of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples and taught us in Matthew chapter 6, I want you to remember that it, it, it continues under that larger heading of devotion to prayer, one of those four commitments that we have seen in our study of Acts 2, commitments of the early believers in Jerusalem. We, we read that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I hope you know that by heart by now. And so we are looking at this model prayer that Jesus taught his disciples as a result of their asking him to teach them to pray. And I'm afraid that I have some bad news for you this morning. Because the two lines that, uh, two or three lines that we want to look at briefly together this morning fall into the category of what we might consider ex-Christianity. Extreme Christianity. Here's the thing. They're very familiar lines. They're very simple lines. And they, they seem fairly innocuous. You know them. They go like this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Simple. Safe. Don't be fooled. Just don't be fooled. You see, from our perspective as, as American Christians, and, and that's what we are, it's, it's the only perspective that, that we've had in terms of the culture that we live in, if we really understand what Jesus is teaching here in these simple lines, and that it is what we must do, and then very likely we're going to find ourselves thinking something like, whoa, that sounds not so simple. As a matter of fact, that sounds rather risky. That might even be dangerous, even lacking in common sense. And if you think that, you're right. From the perspective of American Christianity, you're right. More bad news. From the perspective of Jesus and his first century followers, it's not extreme Christianity. It's just Christianity. It's just following Jesus. It's just normal. It is what Jesus taught his followers to pray. And they lived it. And that presents us with a problem, I think. Because I'm, I'm pretty confident that Jesus intended for us to pray what he taught. And I think that he was pretty serious that we ought to mean what we pray. Because he prefaced this prayer that we've been studying with, This then is how you should pray. But, amidst the bad news, there's good news too. When God answers these prayers, if we as God's people are bold enough to pray them, understanding what it is that Jesus was teaching, 
and calling his disciples to, if we are brave enough to pray them, sincerely meaning them, God empowers us to live out what we are asking for. That has been his intention all along. Now, our text this morning comes from just a, a couple of chapters away from what has been our, our theme text for this whole series. It's in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to read that together. The immediate context, so that you know, because we're kind of jumping in after the action has happened. Peter and John, you may remember the story, they've healed a man who was, who was crippled. He was born that way from birth. And they were teaching about Jesus. They were being a real pain. And so the religious authorities put them in jail. And when they, when they called them to give an account for their actions, what did they do? Well, they started preaching about Jesus again. These guys are just nuts. The leaders couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people, quite frankly, were loving it. They were praising God for what he'd done in healing this, this, uh, this person. And so they let them go because they couldn't decide how to punish them. They were a little fearful, I think. They let them go and they told them to stop speaking or teaching about Jesus. Do you think they complied? Not a chance. These troublemakers said this. Which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. So let's stand together and let's read what happens next. So they've been released. Here we go. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up. And the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord... Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Yes, brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord. Be seated. You know, I just think this prayer is the best example of what Jesus is teaching us in the lines of this familiar prayer from Matthew chapter six. So 
Here's the question I want you to ask your neighbor. And you're probably not going to know the answer to this. Because I don't really either. I'm just suspicious. Ask your neighbor, why didn't they pray for safety? They didn't, you know. Ask your neighbor, why didn't they pray for safety? Now, now. <laughs> Make sure you say that. Okay, the buzz is kind of going down a little bit. So, what'd your neighbor say? Why didn't they pray for safety, Brian? Safety wasn't a priority. Okay, I'll buy that. They were secure in where they were going. They were secure. Can I press that a little bit? Oh, yeah. Why were they secure? <laughs> Say again, Lord. What else? What else? Safest place to be is in the center of God's will. So if you're praying for God's will in your life, you're safe. Can we quote you on that, Andrew? <laughs> Belongs to somebody else. Like, Diane. Oh, they weren't afraid to die. It's an American thing to be afraid to die. Okay, yeah. Quote from our, our dear brother Daniel. This is, this is the country where they don't let you die. Okay. Ah, do you hear that? They've seen Jesus die, and then they had been with him again since his death. They knew that death was not the end of the story. Rich. It's, it's, a, it's a part of who we are. It was part so, of it. It's so intimate with God that they weren't intimidated by him. Yeah. 
Isn't this an amazing instance? I, I just, it never ceases to amaze me when I read this. They, they didn't pray for safety because they weren't concerned about safety. They just weren't. They were not controlled by a need for personal comfort and security. You see, they had been with Jesus and they had heard him say, here's a requirement for those who want to be my followers. Those who want to be my followers must deny themselves and take up their cross. And he wasn't talking about the jewelry that we put around our neck. Talking about the thing that you die on, that big, ugly, nasty piece of torture equipment. Deny yourself, take up your cross, then you can be my follower. You see, I think the early believers knew that it wasn't safe to follow Jesus in Jerusalem. It wasn't safe to follow Jesus in the Roman Empire. It was never safe to call anybody but Caesar, Lord. Safety and comfort, however, just wasn't their concern. What they were concerned about was being obedient and faithful to their Lord. Here's the point. Safety and personal comfort and security were never a part of the offer of Jesus to his followers. Not then. And not now. And do not believe anyone who wants to tell you that. It just isn't a part of the promise that Jesus gives. What was promised then and what is still promised to those of us who follow him now is eternal life in an intimate relationship with the creator. Boy, you look pretty excited about that. Oh, really? That's all there is? What about the pink Cadillac? Oh, man. And here's something else that I think is really important for us to remember. It's, I think, especially significant on this Sunday. Peter and John were recipients of the gift of Pentecost. They were there. They were there when God came blowing into that room and did something that he had never done. They were waiting there because Jesus had told them to wait until you receive the gift from my Father. Today, my brothers and sisters, is Pentecost Sunday. Around the world, churches in all kinds of traditions are going to celebrate, commemorate, The day that God did something incredible like he had never done before. Acts chapter 2. Poured out his spirit upon his people in a new and a mighty way. Now, you remember that event, right? Pentecost Sunday, we've read about that. Why did God pour out his spirit and fill his followers with his presence in a way that he'd never done before? Do Do you remember? I just... Answer out loud if you remember. It's in, it's in Acts chapter 1. It was in response to something in Acts 1. Yeah. It, for what reason? To do, the job. to do the job. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and into the ends of the earth. Don't go 
Don't be my witnesses until you've received the power that my Father is sending to you. Now, I'm not an overly smart person, but something about that makes me think that the task was going to be more than they could do without the power of God. What do you think? Does that sound reasonable? Well, it was then, and it is now. It is. They were to be his witnesses. To be a witness for Jesus Christ is to live our lives in such a way that he is experienced by others through us. And if there's one thing that we've seen, at least I hope that we've seen in our study of Acts 2, that that should stand out in just huge, bold print to us, it is this. Following Jesus is a life-altering all-consuming decision. It is not just another activity that we add to a life that is already full of activities. Jesus never intended that. The decision, capital letters, the decision, changes the very way that life is understood and lived out. You see, from our perspective, that that is dangerous and extreme. Because we are a people of activities and distractions. And we don't want anything to take away from what we have planned. And what we are doing on a daily basis. And so the the possibility that we could pray these prayers... And that they would become very dangerous in our lives causes us to be insecure. But from the perspective of the early believers and for many of our brothers and sisters around the world to this very day, it is normal. To follow Jesus is hard. To follow Jesus means you'll probably suffer. Paul told Timothy, all who desire to live a righteous life will suffer. They will suffer. It is what Christ calls his people to. Pentecost Sunday marks the day in which God poured his spirit into his people so that they might have the power to live their lives in such a way. Listen to this closely. That they would live their lives in such a way so that the kingdom of God would be proclaimed and lived out so that lost people Lost people who are still living in darkness, who are still living according to the lies of the enemy, who are still living life for themselves and not for the one for which they were created, so that those people might have the opportunity to see God's people living a different life and think to themselves, maybe there is a better way to live. That's what it's all about. That is the purpose. Jesus, knowing that the enemy would prowl around like a lion, that's how Peter describes him in his letter, seeking to distract and destroy God's children, Jesus makes the kingdom of God and doing the will of that king the number one priority of his followers in their prayer lives. That is what he taught. My brothers and sisters, this... This line, it is dangerous. It was dangerous from the beginning. But it is normal. 
it is what Jesus calls us to. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we say these words, you just need to know that we're not praying about some future eschatological reality that is out there in the distance somewhere. Now, number one priority request is asking that God's kingdom, that His rule as king and the values and the economy of His rule be made known in this world for all people to see so that they might have the opportunity to choose to live out their lives in this world as citizens of that kingdom. Doesn't that sound cool? Here's the problem. We're the ones who are supposed to be doing it. You know, I, I like the sound of it for someone else. You know, it's, it's noble. It's, it's, it's just kind of lofty and cool sounding. Where the rubber hits the road is that it's my life. It's what Jesus calls me to. It's what he calls you to. Through the citizens of God's kingdom. Those are his people. Those are his children. Each one of us here that claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Through those people. The kingdom is made known. Because those people happen to live in a very intimate relationship with the king. In fact, it is so intimate that they are outrageous and daring enough to call the king of the universe Father, Papa, Daddy. And they do so because they're more than just citizens of his kingdom. They're his kids. He's adopted them. They're part of his family. They sit around his table. They're in the household. Does this do anything for you? Oh, I just love this. Not if you're going to be cynical again. (laughs) This is my good friend, Rich Agnew, by the way, in case you're thinking I'm being nasty. Yeah. And I'm sure they were nervous too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't get personal, Rich. Jesus is teaching us to make this the number one priority of our prayer lives because he knows that even as redeemed people, everything in our flesh wants to make My kingdom come and my will be done. And when we get into that mode, when we live in that mode, our king is not seen and his kingdom is not known and his values and his economy are not proclaimed to a watching world. The Holy Spirit of God given to his people at Pentecost lives within each one of those people. That's the mystery. That is the mystery of salvation is that that God not only saves us, he not only redeems us, he not only guarantees our eternity with him, but he indwells us until we get there. That is so amazing. 
And it's the Spirit of God living in us that gives us the power to recognize the lies of the enemy, to do battle against the flesh and the enemy, and everything that encourages us to make this life about us and not about him. And so when we pray, Father, may your kingdom come. We are praying out of a relationship of intimacy that he has invited us into, that of father and child. When we are to pray as as confident children in the knowledge that, that we do not have to worry about ourselves because our perfect and loving Heavenly Father is in absolute control of the circumstances of our lives. As Gary said, we, they, they were secure. They were secure. We are secure. Promises to them haven't changed. The promises to God's people, we have the advantage of seeing it lived out in their lives so that we might do likewise. I think that's exactly how those early believers prayed in this morning's text. They didn't pray for safety or for comfort. They did not pray for God to get rid of the bad guys or to change the circumstances. They prayed that God would give them strength to speak and live with boldness. And they were nuts, right? They were normal. Jesus' standard of normal. Committed followers of Jesus that understood their relationship to their Heavenly Father. John Stott says it like this. He says, if, if God is in reality our Father in Heaven, the personal God of love and power, fully revealed by Jesus Christ, Creator of all, who cares about the creatures He has made and the children He has redeemed, then and only then does it become possible, indeed essential, to give his concerns priority and to become preoccupied with his kingdom and his will. When we pray, Father, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're asking God to keep us alert and attentive to the life that he has called us to live to the new reality that we're a part of as redeemed people who are no longer, get this, concerned about themselves. That's, that's the drive of humanity, my friends. Unredeemed humanity is concerned about itself. Jesus came and said, don't worry any longer. i got everything under control. You live for me. Make my kingdom known. Live out my values. Do my will so that others may see the glory of our Father. When people look at our lives, who do they see on the throne? Who's running the show when people watch me closely? People who know you well observe your life. Who do they see you living for? To pray for the kingdom to come on earth is to pray for God's rule to be manifest in our lives, His reign and His glory, becoming the passion of our hearts. And here's the thing. If we want to know how effectively we are doing that, and I assume that as God's people, we're interested in that. At least we ought to be from time to time. Those who are living in response to the undeserved grace of God that has made us his children will give our attention to one thing. One word. Take this with you. 
And it's obedience to the moral will of God. That's the other part of this priority request. You can't separate the two. You can't pray one without the other. It's a package deal. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray for the kingdom of God to come on this earth, the way that it comes and becomes a reality in the lives of earth's inhabitants is when God's people, His children, those who live in intimate relationship with Abba, Father, they're living in obedience to the values and the economy of the system that they are now a part of. God's kingdom and His gracious rule and His character and His values can only be seen when God's people are attentive to His moral will. You know, it, it occurs to me that in heaven, obedience is never an issue. There's never a question about who's in charge and who's, whose bidding ought to be done. In fact, I'm suspicious that those who are the children of God and already in their heavenly kingdom, I'm suspicious that they quarrel and argue about who gets to obey first. All right, maybe they don't quarrel and argue. But they, they draw straws or they, they, they flip coins or something because they are so close to the Father. They are in the presence of this awesome and amazing God that they can't wait to do whatever it is that he wants them to do because there's never a question in their hearts about the rightness of it, about the beauty of it, about the perfection of it. So they're eager to serve the one who has saved them. How about us? Are we eager? When Jesus instructs us to pray that the Father's will be done on earth, make no mistake, my brothers and sisters, what it is that he's talking about. You know, theologians talk about the the different dimensions that we seem to see in Scripture of of God's will. There's there's what some refer to as the cosmic will of God. That would be, some call it the declarative will, um, the secretive will. We, we can't really, we can't know that. That's the will that holds the universe together. That's the will of God that brought salvation to humanity. Uh, we can't know that will. And, and we don't need to pray about that will because it's, it's, it's there. It's happening. It's done deal. The will of God that we have something to do with is the moral will of God. The lifestyle that he calls his people to live, that's where obedience comes into play. Jesus is talking about the moral will of God. Are we going to surrender our heart's desire for safety and security and comfort and control and fame and fortune to be obedient to the commands of Scripture? Specifically, I would say, obedient to the commands of Jesus that he gave us in those pages of the Sermon on the Mount that we have studied together before. And to the New Testament letters and and the epistles. Get an opportunity this afternoon. Go home and and turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. And start reading and read right on through the end of chapter 7. And be reminded of what the values of the kingdom of God are like. has a lot to do with the heart that is surrendered to God. has to do a lot with relationships, people who keep their word, being people who, who, are, who are willing to humble themselves and to 
accept wrongdoing and injustice. I was in a conversation this week with someone. I don't remember who it was. And it doesn't matter. There, there was, we were talking about some wrongdoing, and these words came out of my mouth. Did you press charges? I can't believe I asked that. <laughs> Obviously, there, there's a spectrum here, and, and we all will arrive at different places, and you have to settle where you stand on that with the Lord. But can I just say that Jesus said these words, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who treat you like crap. I didn't say it. Jesus did. You know what I meant. Oh, my goodness. My friends, who are we serving? Who are we serving? Are we serving the one who has saved us or are we serving ourselves? Are we out to secure our lives and to live in comfort and safety and certainty as if those things are within our control? Or do we just want to surrender and, and begin to live in obedience and to see the kingdom of God come to bear in the lives of those who watch us live, not because we're pompous and we've got it all together, but because we are just in awe of the one who saved us and desperately wanting to live for his glory and obey him and follow after him. Yeah, it's nuts. It's dangerous. It's extreme. It's it's. It defies common sense in the life of the culture in which we live. It's Christianity. It's following Jesus. That's what he calls us to. Praise team, come on up and lead us as we respond this morning. And let's pray together as they come. Father, thank you for this time together. Father, Abba. God of the universe, the one who holds our very life in his hands. You've invited us into a relationship of intimacy that ought to just blow us away. Forgive us when we are not. God, we pray. We pray that you would fill us to overflowing again and again, day in and day out, with the presence of your Spirit. Jesus told his followers, if you, being earthly fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, oh God, may that be the prayer of our lives every day. Spirit of the living God, fill us so that the kingdom and the glory of our King may be seen in the lives of those who are lost, we pray in Jesus' name.